0: I do believe that sexuality is a place of great power for humans and I think that it is a path to find true liberation from old systems that no longer serve us, like patriarchal religion.
1: Welcome, welcome to PS I Love Me, the podcast. I am your host, Gina Swire, international self-love expert, coach, author, and manifesting queen. And I am on a mission to help a billion women fall madly in love with themselves and get everything they want in their life. And that, my friend, includes you. This podcast is for down-to-earth women who love spirituality, manifesting, and laughing at life's challenges. And remember, with self love, anything is possible. So, today I am interviewing the beautiful, wonderful, wise, (laughs) holy Sharika, who is a new friend of mine, uh, recently met on a deep dive immersion in Austin. And as she was sharing her message, I just re- immediately felt I wanted to interview her for PS I Love Me, and uh, here she is. So welcome, Sharika. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> and yeah, I'm so excited to bring your wisdom to our guests. And just off what I what I've learned of you, what I've felt of you, what I've seen of you, you live such a full and remarkable life, and have a lot of expertise in a lot of areas that a lot of well I personally had no idea about and just find so fascinating so thank you for your experiences in life and everything that you're doing and working towards and yeah it's great 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 to have you here. Thank you I appreciate that. So with that do you want to start by just sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do and where you came from? Yeah,
0: um, let's see. So where I came from, I have a uh, a strong family lineage. Um, I'm a member of the First Nations community here in the United States. Um, I am a member of the Southern Sierra Miwok, um, the Awanichi Kutsadaka clan, um, and we are the original people of what's now colonially referred to as Yosemite National Park. We called it Awani, so I'll refer to it as Awani from now on. Um, and my, I'm the four times great-granddaughter of the last chief of our tribe, uh, Chief Tenaya. And um, I was not raised uh, in my homeland. My dad and his branch of the family uh, moved from that area to Idaho when he was in his later teens, and so I pretty much grown up here um and it's been a process of reconnecting with my tribe and um over the last uh 10 years really and um here in idaho i uh, am married to an amazing woman named monica and we have been together for about 10 years i'm also training uh right now i'm in school to be what's called a certified somatic sex educator and sexological body worker which is a um a modality that was created in the 80s um, by queer people after the HIV epidemic happened. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful, amazing body of knowledge that's be- that mostly just reframes what people think sexuality is. Uh, it's sort of the adult sex education that we all deserve, and it's based off of newer understandings of trauma and how trauma gets lodged actually in the physical body. And so in somatic sex education, it's through the physical body that we help people. Um, it's a, It's been really rich. I've been in that school for the last, uh, the school is in Canada. It's called the Institute for the Study of Somatic Sex Education, and I've been a part of that school for the last uh, three-ish years or so. And I'm practicing as a student in that line of work. Um, so that's really rich for me, that's really up for me right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing all of that. So interesting. You said you've been in a process of connecting with your tribe and your land. How how has that been? What's that been like for you? It's been
0: really fucking hard.
1: <laughs> that's what it's been.
0: <laughs> so my family here in Idaho, uh, you know, my dad, uh, he's very native looking. Um, and when he was still in California, he and his uh, brothers and sisters grew up in a really gnarly um, area in a really gnarly neighborhood. And he doesn't really ever talk about his past, um, but there have been like maybe two times in my life when he has opened up. And one of those times it was when we were in California and we were driving around the area where he used to live in San Jose and he, for the first time ever started pointing out like oh this is this was the black neighborhood oh this was the mexican neighborhood and he explained how his the neighborhoods were parsed by race and he and his brothers had to form a gang when they were young um to be able to live where they lived and um he grew up really poor and so it is my belief he hasn't specifically said this um but it's my belief that he sort of raised us to be as uh white as possible as a survival slash coping mechanism um because when we moved to idaho he has like eight brothers and sisters and uh not a single one of them except for the oldest one the oldest one did but the rest of them didn't really acknowledge the heritage um they all really they're all like really um Fundamentalist Christian, um, and that was really what I was raised in as a child. Was just real, real intense fundamentalist uh, Baptist Christian. Um, I would, and I feel it was like borderline cult. <laughs> um, and so that's what I was really indoctrinated with. And when I was a child, I was, I'm, I'm really good at remembering things I read, and so I retained a lot of the scripture was into it until I wasn't, which was when I was in puberty, when I hit puberty and my sex drive began to express itself. Um, that's really what started to rock my, um, my faith that I had. Plus my parents' marriage was starting to crumble and the church sort of turned on me as churches do. And, um, and there was a period of time when I was a teen where I really tried to hold on to that faith because i was like man you know surely surely all the people i love who believe this and have taught me these things some of which are harmful surely it must be true and so i like went through a phase where i was studying all these different religions and then i decided to look into the history of the church as a way to like prove to myself that it was valid and particularly the history of the church was the thing that made me realize oh <laughs> For me this is clearly not valid. This is not rooted in truth and I no longer believe the Bible has really anything to do with uh the organizing spirit I would consider God. So I I let, I shed that skin of religion um when I was like 16 and it was a process of be- becoming aware of my sexuality. This this sounds kind of weird but when you're raised in a place like Idaho where being queer and homosexual in a bubble in a religious bubble where like nobody who is different is you're ever around them like you don't even know i'm gonna use eye language i didn't even know that being gay was a thing like when i started to have sex i engaged with male-bodied people um and i was attracted to female-bodied people but i just was like i just thought all girls were attracted to other female body people and that it was normal and you just didn't like say anything about it. And so, uh, my first, uh, most of my first sexual exchanges were with uh, male-bodied people. And it wasn't until I was like 18, 19, that I started to realize that I wanted to take action on it. And so then I started having threesomes where I was in it for the female-bodied person and the male-bodied person was usually quite disappointing. Um, and then eventually I got to the point where I just had a sexual exchange with a female bodied person and realized, oh, okay, no, this is, I'm, I'm gay. I'm gay. Uh, I'm queer for sure. Now I identify as pan. Um, but, uh, that process of like learning to accept myself was really powerful. Um, And I think that the main reason why I was able to think myself out of my religious upbringing was because I was such a voracious reader as a child and uh, reading different books helped open my mind and educate me to things that the adults around me were not teaching. Um, And one of the things that my upbringing really guided me on the path that I'm on today is I often would sit and wonder why has religion or patriarchal religion done so much to demonize human sexuality and especially women's sexuality and as I asked myself that question I the thought came up well it must be focusing on it because there's great power there and that question of why has it done so much to to demonize this well there must be great power there that question has fueled my journey ever since and the first time i experienced what i would call sex magic was when i started having sexual experiences just with women not that it's not something i could experience with male-bodied people but i think the way that we are conditioned in this culture to think what sex is with male-bodied people makes it really inaccessible versus with women um, there are you know we don't uh, we we feel into our sexual sexuality quite organically because it's not like on porn as much, you know, so uh, so we make it up. And then in the, in the making of it up, we we um, slow things down oftentimes and uh, we're not as goal focused um, and uh, there's for the female orgasm to take place. In my experience, there has to be a lot of like safety and vulnerability. Um, And so those things are cultivated from what I would call slow sex and in in the experience of slow sex, uh, that's where you can really feel the magic of the body. Um, So that's where I first experienced it. And um, yeah, and so I do believe that sexuality is a place of great power for humans. And I think that it is a path to find true liberation from old systems that no longer serve us like patriarchal religion
1: so many powerful things in there so many things that you've been through and overcome I just find it yeah so powerful so what was it like as a as a teenager growing up out of your normal your normal culture and then being so in with the church as you say and then that all turning against you like how did that feel and what did that Kind of how did that impact you?
0: Mm. Well, it's really eye-opening because, you know, the thing about religion or and most people who identify as religious that is the hardest for me is the hypocrisy. You know, people who preach about Jesus Christ and his example who don't actually emulate any of the qualities that he espoused. The hypocrisy is the most distasteful thing to me. And there's also this this atmosphere of judgment. Um, and I believe that some people are attracted to religion because they have woundings or insecurities. And in being religious and this sense of feeling saved by this, you know, powerful being, I don't think this is a conscious thing, but I think unconsciously it helps them feel better than others. And so in religious community, uh, everybody's really trying to put forth this image that they are on the path and they are the holiest and they are, uh, you know, they say we're sinners, but then they really like to just judge people who, whose sins are made known. Um, and yeah, like my sex drive, You know, when I first had sex, I was not deluded in thinking that like I wanted to have sex for love. I was uh, very clear that I was mainly just wanting to have sex to see what the experience of it was like. Um, And so I wasn't like shattered when when it was, you know, like the whatever experience that most of us have when we first have heterosex. But unfortunately, I had a fear around, I had this immense fear around getting pregnant. And um, I like, at the time my family had just gotten a computer and so I like researched on the computer, uh, like if you could get pregnant from pre-cum and my parents ended up seeing the search history and finding out and uh, they reacted as poorly as you would imagine. Um, Some very, very hurtful things were said, uh, particularly from my dad and, And that was really painful, really hard, um, and all the shame and stuff that goes along with that, the rejection of family, all of that. When my parents' marriage started to crumble, uh, I went from being a really popular person in the church to all of a sudden, like, nobody would really, like, talk to us. My mom had a lot of difficulties because my parents attempted to go to Christian counseling, which, according to her, essentially was just a process where they blamed everything on her. (laughs) Um... And so, you know, and I, as a child, was able to see how the sort of image of relationship that my parents created was was not actually based in any authentic intimacy. Um, I would say by the by the end of their marriage, they were basically roommates. Um, both of my parents have an immense amount of PTSD. Uh, my mom has a whole family of alcoholics and suffered various forms of abuse my dad also the ones who aren't christian are alcoholics in his family and he was just raised super poor lots of abuse there too um and then my dad once he he was in he got he went into the military and he was um, in two wars and so the man has a lot of cptsd um that's my uh and and it makes him very difficult to connect with on an emotional level and so um it was very destructive uh for my mom to be partnered with someone that she definitely loved but just was never unable to really connect with um and so yeah and as a child i saw all this and was like wow they're just like people living together but they're like staying together anyway i feel like i'm getting off track but um, but it was hard. Uh, but it was eye-opening, and you know, I think that's the thing about religion is most folks, when they get out of the bubble, can can recognize how false, like how it's all built on false pretenses, and that's why today I'm so passionate about creating sex-positive community because the thing that I think religion does right is that is the community people gathering once a week in communion having you know similar values you know sharing in each other's uh issues you know supporting each other i love that piece and i think that is the piece that keeps people locked in and so that is the piece that i want to emulate but but based on values of sex positivity of actual human affirming real connection uh being messy in our humanness like making mistakes but being able to make them better um seeing each other as we really are and all of our flaws and accepting that that's what i want to create um and i'm grateful for the way i grew up because because i do have this lens and um and i am very proud I'm very very proud of the fact that i was able to think my way out of that belief system when i had no examples when i had nobody in my family who was showing that way i was able to think my way out and that has made me an independent thinker ever since and i'm very proud of that that's really hard to do mm. um thank you reading and books for for helping me with that <laughs> yeah no it was hard but i'm i'm a big fan of the idea of like i'd much rather know the ugly truth than the beautiful lie and um that that whole experience of breaking from the church and having folks who turn on me that's that's what that did for me is it revealed the ugly truth
1: Mm. Wow! wow 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 yeah much rather know the ugly truth and the beautiful lie love that mic drop moment there Mm. (laughs) (laughs) okay Mm. Mm. yeah so I can see how this is all formulating and yeah I want to just take a minute to acknowledge that how challenging and like beautiful that is that you broke away from all these patterns and all this alcoholism and abuse and uh, making your own way and what you want to create and having this community with, with all the good parts of that and everything that you want with the sex positivity, basically Easter, (laughs) where we met. (laughs) No wonder we love it so much, and yeah, and just getting to to be messy humans and not be sinners, and yeah, it just seems so logical right now, and yet most of the world has grown up the complete opposite, so I love that thought for you, and yeah, it really shows like what a brave soul you have, and that this mission is running through you, and that you know you you had this yeah, you had this gift coming coming to earth and you're expressing it now and getting to share your message with our listeners today just feels so right yeah I mean it is
0: brave it is incredibly incredibly hard um, because there's very real costs to this uh, journey you know like my most of my family that I grew up I mentioned my dad had eight brothers and sisters I grew up with all of them and Uh, The Martinez family, we were always very close, um, and I was definitely one of them. Um, And then when I came out, um, a large majority of them rejected me. My dad, when I first came out, rejected me at first, but to his credit, it didn't take him very long to... Call me back I I definitely quoted some of his own scripture at him, but it didn't take him long to call me back and i'm grateful that my dad has chosen to choose his love for me over his uh, dogma but there's still some distancing there. Um, and, but he loves my wife and he's very, very awesome now, but a lot of my larger more extended family like I just don't have relationship with them. Um, And. it's it's a shame um that it is that way but you know i feel like yeah i kind of like the beautiful lie i mean i I'd, I'd much rather be loved for for or i'd much rather be hated for who i really am than loved for a false illusion that i'm not mm-hmm. but the actual lived reality of that is really fucking hard mm-hmm. um and comes with a lot of like emotional management um of just like relatives like when uh when i was getting married i invited one of my aunts and she actually i I do appreciate that she actually called me up um but she called me up to tell me that she didn't feel right about coming to my marriage that she felt like it would be condoning same-sex marriage and i tried to say something like well you know you coming to my wedding isn't you condoning anything it's you supporting me as your niece like doesn't mean you give your stamp of approval but like you know, it just shows that you love me. And um, and she said some things around like, well, I just feel so bad for you. You know, being a grandparent is one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. And like, you'll never be able to experience that. And I was like, and Gail, I can absolutely have children if I want to. Like,
1: yeah. I, I, now no. now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a possibility in this lifetime.
0: <laughs> yeah. And just the way that like Christians have perfected the art of compassionate contempt <laughs> of like, oh, I love you, but you're going to go burn in hell. So I'm going to pray for you. It's like this, like, I don't know. It's, it's just like the weird uh, cognitive dissonance that it takes for these folks to act like they are these like heavenly pious beings. When, when you think about it, folks who identify as Christian at somewhere along the way, they've had to accept and approve of the idea that people around them, like myself, who are, you know, pretty good people, like I don't go out and like harm anyone. Um, I haven't brought children to the world that I have nothing to do with, you know, it's like pretty good person, but my religious family at some point has to accept the fact that I am, when they die, they're going to go to this wonderful paradise. When I die, I'm going to go get like tortured for eternity, like never ending pain and suffering always forever. I don't, I don't think people really stop to think about that concept of eternal torture and how fucked up that really is. Um, but like they, they, they think they're going to be enjoying paradise while knowing that someone like me, who um, whose main sin is that I'm, quote unquote, gay, uh, that I'm going to be tortured for eternity. And they're fine with that. Like they're going to be totally cool, enjoying paradise while people that they knew and loved here on Earth are going to be tormented for eternity. You're telling me that makes you a good person. You know, you tell, you're telling me that teaching children that, teaching children that the being who created them also created an eternal torture chamber that awaits them if they don't do X, Y, and Z. How is that not abusive? Like, there's so many things about religion that we just accept that are actually really, really awful when you stop and think about it. And yet, these folks have so much sway in so much of our community, at least here in the United States and here in Idaho, especially Idaho is a very like conservative Christian place. Um, also very white supremacist. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I don't understand like how how people can get lost. And then And then there's like the whole piece of being Native American. And, you know, I already had a lot of like, I guess I'll use the word contempt for organized religion uh, because of the way that I grew up. And then when I studied the history and then as I've gotten to connect more with my tribe and heard some of the things the elders have shared about the Catholic boarding schools they were forced into and tortured in, um, it's really hard for me because a lot of native tribes are Christian because of the very brutal assimilation tactics that they went into. And I used to be really fiery about that Um, but in reconnecting with my tribe and hearing some of those stories I realized how the embrace of Christianity was in essence a, a bit of a survival tool really it was a survival tool and some of the older generations just have a really hard time letting go of that because they had you know when they went to the boarding schools they had tribal tattoos and the very compassionate Catholics took heavy grade sandpaper and burned The tribal tattoos off of these children's skin using heavy grade sandpaper is one example of ways in which christians press their views and when you go through a trauma like that of having someone burn a fucking tattoo off of your body with a sandpaper machine it's like yeah you're probably going to cling to whatever they tell you to believe because otherwise you're going to be hurt (laughs) or your children are going to be hurt um so it's been it's been a process of like feeling a lot of grief for what my elders went through, and then feeling a lot of compassion for the ways in which people like my dad raised me to be a complete product of assimilation. It was a survival tool. So I really have a lot more compassion for him now versus before I really connected with the tribe, I used to be very upset that he didn't teach me anything. Um, But he also experienced a lot of racism. Um, And so, you know, it's interesting with my dad, because when I talk to him about racial stuff, he'll sometimes share these stories of things that have happened to him that are very clearly racism. And I'll be like, Dad, I can't believe that cop or, or that store owner was being so racist. And he's like, oh, that's, that's not racism, Sharika. That's just the way it is. He has this like resigned like, oh, that's not it's that's just how it is. Sharika. It's not even. he doesn't even register it as racism. That's how like normal it was his whole life. Um, so just a lot of compassion for that too. Um, a lot of compassion for you, dad.
1: <laughs> so how do you have grown up in your tribe um, or, you know, from from reconnecting with them? What What is that like? Like, what is life like for a tribes member or a tribe mm-hmm. woman? It's very
0: heavy. There's some very real issues that we are facing today many of the tribal members who still live in the area of our homeland um, they really struggle so right now we're dealing with an issue of federal acknowledgement so a little a little historical context for for folks um, to understand what i'm talking about so back in like 1850 uh, gold was discovered in california and when gold was discovered, uh, the California Senate, which was just being formed around that time, I think um, they they essentially put spent the equivalent of $45 million in today's money, which they paid to random vigilantes, they paid to soldiers, they paid to uh, bounty hunter-esque types um, to essentially hunt, kill, or enslave Native Americans in California. And the uh, one of the bigger militias that that did this, or one of the bigger uh, military groups, was this uh, group of people called the Mariposa Battalion, which was led by Major James Savage. These folks came into Awani and um, were, of course, struck by the immense beauty. Have you ever been to Yosemite National Park, Gina? Yeah, one of the eight wonders of the world, I believe, and it is it is amazing. It is an amazing place. Uh, even the most jaded white colonizer going to that place can feel the spiritual impact of that land it is it is remarkable um so when major james savage first came into the valley uh my ancestor chief tanaya he uh, he led a resistance actually he he hid a large group of our he hid most of our people in some of the back valleys he essentially waged uh guerrilla warfare and he was very successful for a while um but at some point uh, the Mariposa Battalion uh, managed to track some of our tribal people, and of those he tracked, were some of Tanaya's kids. And so Major James Savage was like, "Hey, Tanaya, you need to turn yourself in, or we're gonna we're gonna kill your kids." So that's why Tanaya did. He came. Uh, there's a place called Tanaya Lake, and he went there to turn himself in and the uh the white soldiers ended up killing his kids anyway by stoning them to death in front of him and when he was there and his and all of this by the way is recorded in like the journals of the soldiers who were part of that battalion um so while he's there crying um and upset uh the uh captain tells him hey uh we're gonna name this lake lake tanaya and Tanaya was like why it already has a name we call it piwiak and the the soldier was like, oh, because this is the place where your people lost everything and where you're never going to return to. Before I connected with my tribe, I thought that Lake Tenaya was named for my ancestor in honor of him. Wasn't until after I connected with the tribe that I found out that piece of the story. And in fact, above Lake Tenaya, across the lake, depending on which side you're on, there is a rock feature that has these three big bumps in them. And it's called Three Brothers. And it's named for the three brothers that were murdered in front of Tanaya. Um, and, you know, when I went on my traditional walk this year, which is a walk that our tribes do each year, it's a it's a walk that we traditionally did for centuries. And um, it's like about a 60-mile-long walk. We do it over the course of six or seven days. Um, when we are and we do a rest day in the middle of that at the Nile Lake. And when we're there, you know, all the tourists go to that lake and it's fucking beautiful, right? It's a, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place to be. And like the tourists are just like exhilarated. I think I heard like three different languages spoken when I was there. Beautiful, beautiful place. And the meaning that it has for them and the way that they experience that land in that place and how different it is for what we feel when we go there is one example of the difference in being a descendant of white America versus being a descendant of first nations and we have to carry that you know like um grief is a very huge part of this reconnection process. And I have tools, Gina, like I I absolutely have tools. I would say more tools than the the tr- tribal members who have grown up there. Um, I have definitely benefited from the fact that my dad raised me uh, in assimilation. And, um, and so I have these tools, but even with those tools, the degree of heaviness is intense. Um, and as you know, when we were at ISTA, is to really focuses a lot on like emotional release and like family of origin stuff and I gotta say like that that I released so much tribal shit during some of those things that we did and it's like I was there and I was just like man every tribe every tribal member needs to have a space like this where they can scream about these things um because when I tell people about it I tell them like this uh just very matter of fact very calm cool like here's what happened But inside there's a Sharika that's like so much rage and anger that that is there. Um, So, yeah, we carry all of that and we carry that in our bodies. So, yeah, it's been it's been interesting, like getting to know things, um, you know, uh, it's been hard because uh, when I started to try to re-enroll with the tribe. Um, all of my dad's siblings were wildly unhelpful, and the tribe wanted a lot of documentation. They were like, we need birth certificates, death certificates, and marriage certificates for every single person between me and Tanaya, which I know the names of every person between me and Tanaya, but like trying to find documents as a native person is like, (laughs) my dad barely had his own birth certificate. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) And so, and then my family here are just not helpful. And they don't really know. And then the tribe, because the tribe is trying to fight for federal acknowledgement, which I'd like to spend some time talking about, like they're really overwhelmed. They're they're like barely, yeah. They they've got a lot of stuff going on. I can't wait to tell you about that process. Um, but um yeah, so it's 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 burdensome. Um and it's beautiful too, you know, like
1: yeah. So
0: are in the tribe, Sharika. How many people? Well, in Southern Sierra Miwok, I think the last number I heard was like 500, Mm. 500 or 300. Mm. Um, When in 1850, when uh, the colonizers first came, our people numbered 330,000 natives. And within 10 years, that was down to 3,300. Yeah. After after Tanaya turned himself in, he was marched to a reservation in Fresno, California, and he spent the rest of his life fighting to get back to Um, Owani. And in the years since when the the park was turned into a national park, um, our people were only allowed back in there were these things they called um, Indian days, where the park would essentially have our people dress up as Plains Indians. Uh, with like the buckskin breeches, like what you'd associate with like the Ogla Sioux, they made us dress up like them and essentially perform in the park for the tourists as a tourist attraction um, to be able to stay there. And there was like a small allotment of cabins that were that some of our people were able to stay in that then got like burned down um, in the fifties by the park because they didn't want us there. So in that area there are seven tribes that are generally associated with the area of Owani or yosemite Um, of those tribes the two that are the most i would say the most active are the southern sierra miwok and the kutsadaka or mono lake Paiutes. and um of those seven tribes guess which two do not have federal acknowledgement status those two those two and if you think about it, that's actually a really clever way for the United States government to keep Native people warring with Native people because it's actually really difficult for us to get support from those acknowledged tribes. Because if we get acknowledged, there's only so many, a pool of resources. And if we get acknowledged, then each person gets less of a bite of the pie, right? Mm. Um, and so the chair of my tribe, or kind of like the today's equivalent of the chief, uh, I mean, she told me that of those other tribes, like she hasn't even met the chairs of uh, several of those tribes. And there's like, uh, you know, an all tribes meeting where people are asked to come. Um, you know, we we ask them to weigh in on all kinds of things. But essentially the Kutsaraka and the Miwok, we're the ones who like put together all the ceremonies um, that happen in the valley. Uh, we are the ones who mostly and some, some help from the Bishop Paiutes. Uh, we do the cultural monitoring when the tribe is, um, or I'm sorry, when the park is making changes to the park. Uh, we have like a tribal member go and watch um, to see if they find anything um, like artifacts or whatever. So we, make, so we can make sure they don't get stolen, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, we really struggle because uh, there's not as much native to native support as you might hope um, because of the way the US set things up like that. Um, and so, yeah, we are struggling with federal acknowledgement. Now, if you can imagine how, you know, here in this work, we talk a lot about consent, right? Verbal agreements and the US government made a bunch of agreements uh, with native people, um, created treaties that they then never ratified. And it's like, it's like making a deal with someone and saying, Yeah, I'm going to pay you $500 for this car. And then like two years later being like, just kidding. (laughs) I took your car, but now I'm not going to pay you anything. Uh, Unratified treaties are the bane of our existence. A lot of promises made that weren't kept and um, the impacts are immense. So because we're not federally acknowledged as a tribe, um, which is, is gnarly in a consent form because we're essentially asking consent from the very people that paid $45 million to hunt us down, rape and enslave us. We have to ask these people for permission now to say that we exist. The, the emotional labor of that um, we have been locked in a 40-year-long legal battle to try and get acknowledged as a tribe. We have elders dying who have ne- who've spent their whole life fighting and never been acknowledged. There's a lot of benefits that we would get if we were acknowledged, like a reservation in the park, which I think is probably the main reason why the government keeps putting it off, because they don't want to give us a reservation space in the park. Um, We would be able to uh, collect, right now we have to ask permission from the park to get traditional plants. Uh, We're famous for weaving these big ornate beautiful watertight baskets. And if you go to Awani and you go into the white owned hotels there, uh, there's all manner of the baskets on display. Uh, There's a museum where they have several of the baskets like in the back. Anyway we are not actually able to go harvest the plants that we need to make those baskets without permission from the park and the park is a bit circumspect with permissions that they give and don't give um we um used to do a lot to manage the land we would do controlled burns um Yosemite or Awani, like if you go there, it's a land of these huge granite walls, there's these gushing torrential waterfalls, and then these beautiful wide open meadows. Well, when I went on the traditional walk this last year, a lot of those meadows are being overgrown by a tree that we call Utsavi, uh, which means like fast growing pine, and we would burn them um but the the park instead takes clippers and like clips them down at their base and if you've ever tried to walk into Almy Meadows it's like an ankle breaker <laughs> uh, and like the whole park in general is very overgrown and in fact the, the the plant that we use to make the baskets from is getting choked out because of that overgrowth and um we're not able to do our controlled burns because we have no say
1: as you're speaking, I'm just really feeling like the medicine of the, of the native people and let they know what they're doing and they have these practices and, you know, it's the ecosystem is all just being like fucked with basically. What is the medicine of the tribe?
0: I think the fact that we're still here, you know, I think the fact that we're still fighting Um, because after a 40 year long legal battle where the government has lodged all manner of things against you, whether it's like tax audits or these like really laborious things, um, it can get really easy to get really, really jaded. Um, and you mentioned like, what's the life of like the tribal people who are still there, like it's, it's fucking heavy and it's hard. Um, and because we don't have a reservation. Our people make up three percent of Mariposa County's population, but we make up thirty percent of the homeless population. For example, um, in this legal battle that we've been involved in currently, the reason the US. government has currently staved us off is there's these seven criteria that you have to meet as a tribe um, to be considered a tribe by the federal government. and we meet all of those criteria. The only criteria that they currently got us on is they say that we have to prove that we're a community from 1986 onward, which is a fucked up because the fact that we don't have this acknowledgement and like people like my my dad's side of the family, they moved away because there weren't opportunities in our homeland area for us to thrive. And so they had to move away to create communities elsewhere in order to find some opportunities in life. So it's really messed up that the the government's now being like, oh, you have to prove that you're a community from this time onward, even though we gave you absolutely nothing to stabilize your community, for example. And so so in order for us to prove that we're a community, what that looks like is we have to collect photos, uh, anniversary announcements, birth announcements, uh, wedding announcements from 1986 to now and we have to turn them in and for every photo we have to name every single person in the photo their full name we have to name where the photo was taken and the exact date that it was taken on Um, and i think we have over 1200 pieces of proof that we exist as a community Um, and again you know with native people it is sometimes like documentation is hard um and the degree of effort that it takes to take these photos and like nag people to put their names on it and like identify what date and where it's just it's this huge laborious process and it's like how can you focus on educating your youth When you're so bogged down, just trying to like push through this legal battle, you know, and that's just one thing we're dealing with, you know, we're also dealing with trying to help our homeland not be sickened by the the complete whoring out of it by the National Park Service. I mean, the, the number of tourists that they push through that park is insane. And, you know, the one thing I want to share about native culture is like the land for us is not something that we owned, you know, we called it Awani and my tribe we named ourselves awanichi we named ourselves after the land not the other way around and the land to us is a relative it's a relative so when we're in there and seeing the park whoring it out and letting people you know when i went there in 2016 for the first time there's a there's a springs there um and when i went by the springs some tourists had left like a dirty diaper like on right by the springs um so complete disrespect um and just complete like not knowing um and we have to watch that and we have to watch it get sick you know at the traditional walk this year i mean we were talking to some park employees who were talking about how they as white park employees also see how the land is sick they talked about these toxic algae blooms that are happening in the water sources there um so it is sick and we have to watch that happen um And, yeah, and then there's fires, uh, because the U.S. doesn't want to listen to Native people about the wisdom of controlled burns. California is burning every year. Um, And this particular year, a bunch of my tribal members were impacted by the Oakhurst fire, which burned down people's houses. Um, During the traditional walk, a lot of my tribal members couldn't even come because they were literally evacuated from their homes. and yeah, it's it's just there's a lot of serious repercussions um, for the fact that we're not acknowledged as a tribe, and you know at ISTA and other um, trainings that I've been at, people often want to do these land acknowledgments, which land acknowledgments are a great step in the right direction. At least we're now acknowledging the brutal history that so much of white education system completely ignores and silences. Great, but there's but I need more. And land acknowledgments are not enough, like to just say, Hey, you know what? We live on the stolen land of this particular tribe. Okay, let's acknowledge this and move on with our day. It feels hollow to me, you know? It's a step in the right direction, it's better than silence. But, like, my main point is that tribes today are dealing with things, um, that in major injustices today, and that white folks who want to care need to not only acknowledge the name of the tribe of the stolen land they're on, but to actually look into that tribe's current affairs and what are they fighting for. So for example, here in Idaho, uh, the Nez Perce tribe, they are fighting a gold mine that is threatening their water sources and their hard-won fishing rights. The Diné, the Navajo, a few years back, uh, a different gold mine, dropped what was it three million gallons of toxic acid sludge and heavy metals into the river that provides the water source for that tribe how many people who buy the navajo designs and wear the silversmithing that their artisans are known for know or care about that you know with my tribe it's this federal acknowledgement piece um we're the most acknowledged unacknowledged tribe on the planet if you go to awani there's all manner of placards and signs that talk about our people there's even a whole indian village in fact that like has our structures there talks about our traditional use of plants uh it looks from the outside like yosemite does a great job of acknowledging our people and behind that shiny surface just like my christian community behind that shiny surface there is vast injustice happening and just to give you an idea of what what it's like so we did this traditional walk Like I said, 60 miles over seven days. And we finish the walk by coming down into the Awani Valley. And we finish at the Indian village where we're going to have a final meal with our relatives before we disperse. And when we get down in this Indian village, there's this guy there. And he has a bunch of artifacts, tribal artifacts. There was like a bow and arrow. There was like a grinding stone. Um, There was like some obsidian rocks. Um, there's uh, There's a basket. So there's a table full of native artifacts from our tribe. And he's giving a talk on the proper way of, um, harvesting pine nuts, which is a traditional food to a bunch of kids. This guy's wearing a long braid. He's got like a necklace of like beads on him and we come down and like, he's not a part of our tribe. And so I ask him, I'm like, Hey, are you native? And he like mumbled something about being native from some tribe somewhere else. And, uh, and he you could tell he was uncomfortable because he quickly started like he was like, "Oh, I didn't realize the traditional walk was today." And he starts like packing everything up pretty quick to get out of there. But like, if you can imagine what that would be like, I don't know if you have, like, ancestral land in your family, Gina, or, or like, you know, a, a property or a place that means something to you, but it's like it's like if you were to go to a family property or house, and somebody who wasn't a member of your family was there sharing your culture and traditions who looked Indian, you know, like what, what that's like. And it's like, I was told by tribal members that our people used to do that, but because we're too busy struggling with homelessness and federal acknowledgement and trying to prevent our land from being destroyed, you know, we don't have the time to do that and the resources to do that now. So they just plugged in some guy who looks native enough. Wow. <laughs> so and meanwhile, there is no mention of federal acknowledgement anywhere in that in that park. And whenever we would talk to tourists as we were doing our walk, when we would educate them, literally every last one was like, what? You're not acknowledged. How is that even a thing? You know, it is it is the great acknowledged, unacknowledged tribe. And, and that has impacts on us because like college scholarships, like if I go to school in California, I can get scholarships anywhere else. I can't. Mm. Um enrollment for my tribe is frozen right now um where like you can't actually get enrolled because of the legal battle um because each person that we enroll they have to they have a mountain of paperwork that comes with them and our pro bono lawyers are already fucking overwhelmed with all the paperwork they're already dealing with so we can't literally can't welcome in our actual relatives um because of this so my point being that tribes today are dealing with shit and if if It's up to us to do more than just acknowledge. It's up to us to like, look at what they're fighting for, um, and do what we can to support those things.
1: So Sharika, what can people, people listening who really, this is really stuck with and, you know, has really touched them as it touched me when you first shared it, um, what can we do to help, to support, to like genuinely let your people rise? Yeah,
0: so on uh, the, for my specific tribe, um, on our website, www.southernsierramiwoknation.org, um, there's, uh, definitely places folks can donate. We also need folks to write letters, um, to the federal government, uh, just kind of saying like, this is fucked up. You should do this. Um, and there, there are like items of action that people can take, uh, some of the tribal members whose properties and homes were destroyed by the Oakhurst fire. I think there's like a GoFundMe on there for them. Um, We also have a scholarship, the Nellie Tucker Scholarship Fund, where that money goes directly to our youth who are looking for education. Um, But I guess like a main takeaway is like really dive into whatever local tribes are around you, like what are they working on? Mm -hmm. And and then political engagement. You know, a lot of tribes in general seem to be fighting like these big corporative Uh, things like, you know, the most famous one being Standing Rock and the Dakota Pipeline, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the Nez Perce with this uh, gold mine. Um, And so the typical story that things like the pipeline and the gold mine do is like, oh, this creates jobs. Oh, this creates economy, money, money, money. We all need money, you know. And so there's something here around the spiritual work of learning for your individual white self. When is enough enough? This concept of like, I have enough. I don't need more. There is enough. You know, the whole corporate setup of like, we always try to maximize profit no matter what, that is the poison that is harming not only Native people, but all people, really. So this concept of like, how do you embody within yourself the concept of enough, which is what you're doing too with your book you know, of like the self-love, like that is a piece of this. Um, You know, when, when we teach in somatic sex education, like the first and most important primary sexual partner you have is yourself. You are responsible for your pleasure, not somebody else. You don't need to externalize your pleasure on other people, just like you don't need to externalize your spirituality on a pastor. Like you are enough. We have enough. And when white America can learn that they have enough that's when some real healing can happen. Mm-hmm. um, so like checking in with your own colonizer greed, not you specifically, Gina, but whoever's listening to this, like what what's your relationship with money, with greed? You know, what's your relationship with entitlement, taking things? Um, you know, do you feel like you're entitled to you know your family's property that was passed down through four generations, you know, based on what they had to do to get that property in the first place? And if you do, hey, cool. You know, just just ask yourself, like examine these things. And maybe you don't want to give up your family's property to the tribe that lived on that land. Okay, but is there other ways that you can support that tribe today? A lot of tribes have like poisoned water um, on their reservations. Uh, A lot of tribes lack like basic um, utilities. So something else that comes up too is like, you know, addiction, treatments, therapy, therapy treatments um things like ISTA or somatic sex education like these trainings that help people self-realize their own worth self-realize their own power anything folks can do who have power in those spaces to open them up to first nations people uh, is key
1: this has been incredible <laughs> Should get So much in there oh my goodness thank you so much I've learned so much and just got to feel it and I know this is going to be really important so yeah thank you grateful of your time and yeah your energy and you're amazing I love you um yeah thank you thank you thank you thanks for giving me the
0: opportunity this is also an important way of creating a you have a platform and I hope that people listen to this will go to the website will help us We'll look into what their tribe is dealing with locally.
1: May it go to the exact people that it needs to go to. Fuck yeah. Thank you. If you've loved this podcast, if you have taken anything away, then do everybody a favor and please share it. Leave a five-star review. This will help us to get noticed, to get seen, and for more of the right people to hear it.